This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Johnny and AJ here. Are you ready to take your career to the next level in 2023? Looking to grow your high-value social circle? You are one relationship away from changing your entire life. Your social circle, professional network, and lack of confidence are thwarting your attempts at accelerating your career. But there's something you can do about it. After coaching over 10,000 clients, including military special operators and Fortune 500 executives, we've learned a thing or two about what it actually takes to grow your network. In fact, over 90% of the amazing guests on this show are from referrals in our own personal networks. We've packaged our best insights inside a course called Social Capital. And as a thank you for being a podcast listener, we want to give you this training for free to start your new year. Inside Social Capital, you'll get three resources to help you grow your network or social circle with simple, actionable tips to fill your inbox with connections and phone with messages to hang out. These resources include our famous Social Capital Formula, a simple strategy that you can use to grow your high-value network daily. Your network is your true net worth. To get your hands on this training and immediately start improving your relationships, Go to theartofcharm.com slash SC. That's theartofcharm.com slash SC. Remember, you can do something to change your career trajectory and instantly grow your social capital today at theartofcharm.com slash SC. Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and winning mindsets so you have the cheat code to succeed with people. Every episode is jam-packed with actionable steps to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. Level up with us each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. We distill thousands of hours of research into the most effective tools and the latest science so you can start winning today. Let's face it, in order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. I'm AJ, successfully recovered introvert, entrepreneur, and self-development junkie. And I'm Johnny Zubak, former touring musician, promoter, rock and roller, and co-founder here at The Art of Charm. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We have dedicated our lives to teaching men and women all they need to know about communication, networking, and relationships. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. To celebrate the close of 2023, we've put together a special best of the year episode for you. So enjoy the insightful walk down memory lane as we visit some of the most memorable episodes from the past year. 
As we enter the new year, let's make sure that we're prepared for what life will throw at us. Change is constant. Transitional periods in life are inevitable. And starting over after divorce or long relationships, perhaps a new promotion or a new role at work, and even a change in career, our programs are designed to level up your skills, hone in on limiting beliefs, and give you the guidance and support as you move towards your new goals. We kick things off with Brad Stolberg's personal insights on embracing and navigating through significant life changes with the 4P framework to master life's inevitable transitions. So for those who are in the midst of change, what can we do to handle it? What are the four Ps that you recommend? The four Ps are to pause and take a deep breath, maybe take a week. If it's a really big change, if it's a health diagnosis, maybe take a month and not immediately rush into fixing mode, but really pause and assess the situation, accept it, update your expectations, then process. So once you're seeing reality clearly, ask yourself, what does this mean? Then make a plan because we do generally have some agency. So given what's happening, given what it means, what are the various roads we can take to move forward? And which of those roads do I want to choose first, knowing that I can always adjust? And then we proceed. But we only proceed after we go through that process, which is very different than a reactionary mode, which are two Ps, which tends to be panic and pummel ahead. <laughs> <laughs> can I, with panic and pummel ahead, I just want to add there too. Sometimes retreating to a safe place so that you can observe, right, is the right thing to do. It may not be going forward, but it allows you an objective mind to get an objective mind to see the field and to see what's going on to make better decisions. <laughs> Panic and pummel forward. It's not going to be it. I love you that. You like my two I, my two P's yeah. versus four well, P's because I mean, I mean, it's true. I've, That's what I've, happens, right? I've been yeah. Hmm. I've I've been there for most of my life. I mean, I think all men and AJ and I grew up in a very blue collar family. So it's just like you keep stepping forward no matter what punches are, well, are coming. It your is way. counter biology like- <laughs> because change does create a stress response and that stress response fuels panic. I mean, your body is telling you to panic. So it really takes a higher level of thinking for you to go, Hey, wait a second. Let me pause here not react in a moment where my body is wiring me to react. Yeah, and and that takes a lot of practice. Um, Something that can help with pausing is just naming your emotions. So when you name an emotion, you create some space between yourself and your experience of it, and that space is the definition of a pause. Uh, Mindfulness practice, I mean, if there is a point to meditation, it's this. It's to be able to create some space between immediate feelings, thoughts, urges, and what you do about them. And I think this is something that takes practice. Uh, If you're in the groove of just immediately reacting, it's going to be really hard to take a deep breath. And we can practice this in small situations in our life, like that email that we want to send, wait 10 seconds, give it another read, that 
text when we're in a really hot emotional state, like wait to fire it off. Yeah. Don't send it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. Maybe the answer is never send it, but but we can practice. We can practice when the stakes are lower so that that muscle is fairly developed when, when the stakes are high. I love that. Thank you for sharing, Brad. The Art of Charm programs are designed with weekly implementation and Q&A sessions to learn your communication style. Understanding the language you use helps to craft powerful identity shifts to empower you. In this next clip, Jonah Berger discusses how framing your actions can shape and reinforce your sense of self, as well as motivate the people around you to perform at their best. Asking questions is a way to make people feel like they have more of a choice, right? So, um, you know, let's say you're a boss, you're trying to get people to stay late after work. If you tell them to stay late, they'll be upset. Um, uh, but if you say instead, hey, you know, how can we become a more successful company? And you have a conversation about it and, you know, somebody's going to bring up, maybe we need to put more hours in. And now it was their opinion, not yours. And so they're much more bought into the the solution. Now, if you ask a wrong question, if you say, hey, do you like staying after work? People people would say no, right? And so what questions are doing there is, is if you ask people, do you like staying after work? That shines a light on that part, that thing to think about. If on the other hand, you shine the light on how do we become a good company, now everyone's brainstorming ideas to achieve that solution. And so that idea of a, a question as a flashlight, I think is a really powerful one. In particular, as you were suggesting, in, in terms of using questions to deflect, um, and it's almost like a, a shield. You know, if someone asks us, hey, uh, what'd you get paid at your last job in, in a job interview? It's a little bit unfair, right? Because if we tell them what we got paid uh, in our last job, then they'll say, great, I can pay you a little bit more in this job. I don't have to pay you a lot more. And so we've given away some, some revealing information. If on the other hand, we say, hey, you know, I don't really feel comfortable talking about that. Then they'll say, oh, and it makes us seem like a not very nice person, right? We sort of, that, that nicely sort of conversation, it's chugging forward and it's come to a, a screeching halt when, when we say something like that. And so often we, we kind of don't know what to do, but questions can be a great way to kind of take that in almost in an improv way, right? Take that incoming uh, I- input and sort of pass it along in a nice way, right? If someone says, oh, what, um, how much did you make at your last job? Saying something like, oh yeah, you know, how, how much do people usually make in, in this role. That shows you're interested. You don't dislike them. You're not trying to be difficult, but you're sort of moving the focus of the conversation onto this particular role that you're interested in. Now, now they can still come back and say, well, you didn't answer my question, but then they're the one being, being rude. And if they want to move with that ball of conversation, they'll be more likely to take it in the direction that you, you sort of pushed it. And so questions being, it can be a great way to kind of take the spotlight off something you don't want to focus on and sort of push that energy or or interest in a different direction. And we're often compelled to answer questions. There's this innate human desire in all of us to be helpful, to be supportive. And even in that job interview situation, by you deflecting, you can get some valuable information out of the interviewer who wasn't even planning on sharing those numbers or those details. And you talk about a lot of times there might be someone who's reticent to give you the answer, like the iPad for sale example. And if we ask the wrong question, they'll focus, again, that spotlight on positives that aren't helpful for us making a buying decision. But if we ask the right question, we can actually get them to give us some information that'd be helpful for us and might be harmful for them. So unpack that because this question thing, we talk so much about questions. We love questions, obviously interviewing, uh, but there's the nuance here that's just so helpful for our audience. Yeah. So um, one thing you're highlighting is kind of what questions assume. 
That may seem a little bit weird to think about, but but there are some types of questions that assume the answer is one way or another. So there was a really nice study some researchers conducted, for example, where they um, asked people to, uh, uh, I mean, imagine selling an, an, an iPad uh, to somebody else. And when they did so, the people were asking different questions. And when people ask questions like, there, there aren't any problems with it, are there? That's a situation where it's really easy to say, nope, there, there are no problems, even if there's a little bit of problem, or, or maybe it's not clear that it's a problem, right? Maybe Maybe once in a while there's a small issue, but it's not a big problem. And if someone said there aren't any problems, are there? It's really easy to go along and say no, right? Just like if you're a, a doctor, a nurse, or a medical professional, you know, sometimes you're seeing patient after patient. When you check somebody in, you say, uh, you, you don't smoke, do you? You know, you don't uh, abuse drugs, do you? You know, you exercise once in a while, don't you? You eat your vegetables, don't you? It's really easy to go, yeah, I eat my vegetables. Yeah, I don't, I don't abuse drugs. All those things, because it's hard to, to oppose what they're saying. But their goal actually isn't just to get you to say yes or no. Their, their goal is to get you to reveal that information, to be, to be honest. And so we need to be careful of the types of questions we, when we ask in, in those situations. Instead, saying something like, to go back to the sales example, you know, what, what kind of problems are there? shows that, hey, I'm actually zeroed in on the problems. I want to learn more. And it makes it hard for someone, unless they're going to drastically lie, lie to our face, to ignore what we're saying. Arthur Brooks offers a fascinating insight into the topic of envy, offering strategies to manage this challenging emotion in a world that bombards us with highlight reels and other people's lives. Envy is, a, is an emotion that actually comes through human evolution. And the reason is because you don't know your place in the hierarchy or how you work in your tribe unless you see how other people are acting and you need some sort of an impetus to get better. So envy comes because people want to get better related to others. That's, that's a very normal human emotion. The problem is it's deeply maladapted to, to modern life. We're not worried about getting thrown out and walking the frozen tundra alone and dying. You know, we're talking about, about how many Instagram followers you have. I mean, it's idiotic. And yet we treat it as if, you know, I don't have enough, I don't have enough buffalo meat for the winter if I don't have enough people following me on Twitter or X or whatever the heck it's called at this point. Yeah, I mean, you get it. It's just crazy how the human brain works. So what we have to do is recognize why it exists, understand it, and manage it is the way that we work on that. Now, envy has two kinds. There's two types of envy. There's benign envy and there's malign or malignant or malicious envy. Now, the benign envy is where we envy somebody who actually deserves to have a good thing happen to them. And you can envy my, you know, my co-author, Oprah Winfrey, but nobody's going to say she didn't earn it, man. I mean, she kicked butt for decades and created tons of value and is admired because people really know that she's done a good thing and dedicated herself to making lives better for other people. Astronauts, you know, this kind of thing. And then fill in the blank on anybody who didn't earn it, which is the reason when you pick up, you know, these magazines, you know, Us Weekly or something, and it's like the scandal of the week from some person who's famous for being famous. And you're like, yes, right? Because that's malicious envy. And the worst thing in life is malicious envy. It will ruin your life. So the way to deal with it is to laugh at malicious envy on purpose, to say, yeah, 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 forget about it. I am simply not, let me think a little bit about how crummy that person's life actually is. You know, famous for being famous, I'm sorry. I've met them, you guys have met them, you've had some on your show, not happy, right? And then think about the people that have benign envy. You, you think about, about the fact that they're actually admirable and say, I've decided to admire them instead of envying them. Turn your envy into admiration and you win. 
you win 10 times out of 10 because you're going to try to be more like them, but you're not going to be consumed with this idea that take them down a peg, you know, that, and so that's the way to do it. You disregard through reality, the people with whom your envy is malicious and you turn your envy into admiration for the people who are on the good side of the ledger, and then you start to win. The other way to look at that as well is if you get consumed by the malicious envy, it takes you off of your path and puts you on their path. And you cannot beat them if you are on their path because it is their path. And so you have to stay on your own. Now, everything inside of you uh, wants you to compete, wants you to jump in because that Envy, if not checked, will consume you, which is why, to bring up your point, it is so important to understand that and to be able to chuckle and laugh it off and get back to what you need to be doing for you and your family. Yeah, for sure. It's also being in touch with the things that kind of touch you off and and bother you most about your envy. I mean, I'm looking at you, John, or you, AJ, and I'm thinking, man, with that hair, I couldn't be stopped. I mean, it's like, you guys are beautiful dudes with this head of hair. At one point, I mean, this is like a once great civilization on top of my head. Okay, <laughs> so <laughs> this is, this is look, we all got our weak points, right? And we tend to focus on that kind of thing is the way that it works. And you got to turn it into a little, a source of hilarity because it's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous, the things that we envy other people for. And this brings up the key point again, be conscious be knowledgeable, be in charge, use your prefrontal cortex, don't feel, think, think, think is the way that it comes down. And that's the secret to almost everything with emotional self-management. Another way that we can overcome envy, improve our charisma and connect with people through empathy. Developing a genuine interest in those people around you significantly enhances your ability to connect and influence them which is crucial if you're aiming for that leadership position at work. Now, one of the things that we see in a lot of our clients who join us is they can't quite be present because they're so focused on themselves. In fact, they're inward facing, right, Johnny? Yes, and you mentioned all the extraneous activity and stimulus that is going on that forces us out of being present. And then when we go out and we go to a social uh, engagement, a social event, we have now the added pressure of, of other people's thoughts and seeing other people's faces. And this will put us in a place of wanting to self-soothe due to all of that stimuli. This forces us in our heads and going through whatever it might be that we need to feel comfortable in that moment. However, that takes us out of the present moment and and a present consciousness to connect with other people. And one thing we see on video constantly with people who feel like they're stuck in their head or they're inward is there's a degree of self-judgment going on. Am I doing the right thing? Am I saying the right thing? How are people perceiving me? And even though that judgment is pointed towards yourself, when other people interact with you, they feel judged. They feel, based on your body language and the way that you're self-soothing, as Johnny said, closing yourself off to protect yourself, to feel more comfortable and deal with the self-judgment you have, you're actually appearing, you're coming across like you're judging others, which makes you off-putting and uncharismatic. So what's the solution here? How do we actually break out of this inward tension that we're feeling and become more present in the moment with someone we're meeting for the first time? Well, the answer is empathy. 
empathy means you're able to put yourself in another person's situation. Well, you can't put yourself in another person's situation if all you're doing is thinking about yourself in the current situation you're in. That requires you to actually learn something about the other person, to be curious about who this other person is. What has their journey been like? What destination are they heading towards in their life? It doesn't mean that you agree with them. It doesn't mean that you're agreeable AJ and say, yes, awesome, cool, totally to everything they say. But instead, you're trying to go a level deeper in conversation to really get to understand what makes this person tick? What has their experience been like that led them here? So this, a big part of empathy is um, something that we develop at around three to five years old, and that is called theory of mind. That is my ability to get into AJ's head and figure out what, what he's thinking, right? I definitely need that for, for empathy. So uh, this theory of mind thing is something that we learn as kids. We learn as adults. We, we improve. We get better and better at perspective taking as our own experience in life grows. Uh, fun fact here that has nothing to do with science, but one of the leading research researchers in theory of mind is Simon Baron Cohen, the brother of Sasha Baron Cohen, who's known for his work as, as Borat and Ali G. Uh, so <laughs> that's something to be said about this thing. But to break it down just a little, for empathy, for theory of mind, you need to be able to take perspective. You need to be able to see the world through the eyes of someone else. So even if you're disagreeing with someone on something, maybe I disagree with AJ on the fact that Italian food is really great. Right, That might be the case, but theory of mind, perspective-taking, empathy allows me to see the world through AJ's eyes and how, I don't know, what might give rise to his uh, proclivity towards Italian food. But by, by, by thinking on a different level about this, going a little, stepping outside of my own head for a little bit and ask myself, what made AJ say that? What could I ask him to find out what made that happen? That is a level of empathy that we need to bring into the conversation. And at its core, this is what we call value, attention, approval, and acceptance. When you bring those three A's into any interaction by giving value to others, showcasing that you actually want to get to know them on a deeper level instead of just focusing on yourself, and even worse, focusing inward on yourself and maybe not saying anything, you become more present in the interaction. And the best part is when you actually interact with someone who's charismatic, Take note of how little it is that they talk about themselves and how much interest they express in you. That's the most amazing thing about charismatic people. They actually don't spend much time talking about themselves, and instead they spend a lot of time getting to know you on a much deeper level. So we can use this presence to our advantage and bring empathy into the interaction to make that leap towards becoming more charismatic, to unlock your own inner charisma. All right, we just unpacked the critical role of presence and empathy in unlocking your charisma to better connect with others. But there's another piece to the puzzle that is just as important for those of us who inspire and aspire to lead. Let's dive into how enthusiasm and optimism not only lift us up, but those around us. If you've been focused on your career, then you've allowed other things, your, your other interests to fall by the wayside. This leads then to you feeling that you're boring because the only thing that has been on your mind is work, that promotion, getting ahead, solidifying and stabilizing your lifestyle, all of those things. And if, and if you have a dog or a pet <laughs> or even a, a, a more responsible yet, a, a family, 
All of those things come down to you being good at your job. So that's where you're going to put all of your efforts. So if you're feeling that you're boring, it's going to be very hard to be enthusiastic outward in conversation when meeting people. So that's something we have to break. And it starts with how you actually feel about yourself. When you understand that even if right at this moment, when you compare yourself to others, you feel like you haven't reached the same level of accomplishments, you haven't gone on the fun trips, or you haven't done the cool things that other people around you have done, if you're viewing yourself as boring, you're then killing your ability to be charismatic when meeting other people. Because that self-judgment, again, robs you from your ability to not only be present, but then also be enthusiastic in other people's presence to allow them to feel good around you. And the reason that enthusiasm is so important is because it's contagious. When we bring enthusiasm into the interaction, when we celebrate others, when we make them feel good for what they're discussing, what their favorite things are, what their accomplishments are, they then in turn want to make us feel good. It's reciprocal. So that's the beauty of it. By putting your focus on others instead of self-judgment, I'm boring, I'm not enough, I haven't done anything interesting. Instead, if you celebrate everyone else's interests, accomplishments, trips, things that they are so excited to talk about, or as Johnny said, their emotional bids, you actually become contagious as a person. They want to spend more time with you. They want to express more interest in you. Now, the thing here is, however, that not only are these enthusiastic emotions contagious. No, in fact, all emotions are contagious. So this might, this, this, this uh, fact of being contagious, uh, which uh, a little bit after the pandemic is still a weird thing to say, but the, the idea that emotions are contagious can also backfire because that means that if you are in a group of people and you are the, the boring person, the pessimistic person, the one who drags everyone down, everyone else is going to catch those emotions. Guess, guess where they're going to go? away from you and towards someone else. And this is why utilizing this enthusiasm within charisma to create those positive emotions that people say, I don't know why exactly, but when I'm standing next to AJ, when I'm standing next to Johnny, I suddenly feel enthusiastic about my life. I feel so much better. I leave the party and I, I'm just, I could high five everyone. I feel so good about myself. And this is particularly important in people that are in leadership positions as a study in the uh, leadership quarterly showed that was titled charisma, positive emotions and mood contagion. And they found that charismatic leaders uh, utilize positive emotions to influence their followers. That's um, obvious. But they also found that mood contagion was a key mechanism in that form of leadership. And they, uh, to, to quote them at the end, they write, our results confirm the idea that charismatic leaders are influ influential by virtue of the emotions they induce in followers and the emotional climate they create. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 
93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So let's unpack this. What is the emotional climate that you are creating around people? People you're meeting for the first time, friends and family, coworkers. Yes, that's right. You create an emotional climate. Your emotions are contagious. So if you're feeling that you're boring, odds are you're not creating a positive, fun, warm, inviting emotional climate around others. So in turn, they're going to want to spend less time with you, not more. And as we know, charisma leads to people wanting more time with us, chasing us, seeking us, giving us promotions, giving us leadership roles because they enjoy our presence. So when we bring enthusiasm, when we bring a positive emotional climate around people that we're interacting with, they're going to want to spend more time with us. So how do we do it? Instead of focusing on yourself, and your accomplishments, and how boring you might feel you are at this present moment, if you bring enthusiasm towards other people's accomplishments, their stories, their adventures, their excitement, their emotional bids, then what actually ends up happening is they feel a positive emotional climate around us. They view that enthusiasm in a positive light, and they see you as more charismatic. Now do we see how our enthusiasm and optimism can create a magnetic effect Let's shift gears a bit. It's not just about the energy that we bring into the room, but the confidence that we exude. And guess what? People don't perceive you to be confident when you're talking about your accomplishments. Let's explore how sharing your journey, including failures along the way, actually bolsters your confidence in a genuine way. A huge pitfall here around confidence is a lot of times we think in order to express or showcase confidence, I have to talk about myself. I have to sell myself. Sometimes I even have to brag about myself so those around me can feel that I'm confident. Yeah, we call that false confidence. And it's the natural default that we all assume about being confident. And this is why we're going to walk into the room when we're going to look for opportunities to sell ourselves. And think about that. If I'm in a conversation with AJ and we're out and about and I'm thinking in my mind, how 
can I interject how awesome I am in this conversation? Well, then I'm not being very present, am I? And confidence is not something that you just have. You earn it through competency. Exactly. You earn it through experiencing that self-doubt and taking action anyways. You learn it through feeling not up to snuff, but going after that goal, hitting the gym, going to that social event, putting yourself in the arena, as we like to say. And unfortunately, for a lot of us, when we think about selling ourselves, well, that sounds terrible. <laughs> I don't want to be in a situation where I have to sell myself constantly, prove my confidence to other people in order to be valued. That sounds awful. So the key here, when we think about how to actually sell ourselves, is not talk about the destination, not talk about the achievements, the accomplishments, list your resume, and everything that you have been able to gain for yourself in life, but instead, sell yourself by talking about the journey. What did you do along the way? What were the doubts you had? What dragons did you slay to get there? How did that goal for yourself actually become a reality? And what made that a goal in your life instead of just talking about the destination, talking about how you got there actually makes you not only appear more confident, but it makes you more charismatic when meeting other people. And that is also something that I, as a public speaker, see a lot at events like TEDx and, and so on, where people will say, well, that speaker was really confident. Like all of the speakers were really confident. And that is true. They're definitely, I mean, it takes definitely takes some confidence to be able to stand in front of a couple of thousand people and give you a talk. But the reason these people are perceived rightfully as confident is that as a good speaker, you don't talk about the accomplishments. You don't talk about, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. You, you structure your talk by saying, this was my dream. This is what I struggled with. These were the obstacles. Here's where I thought I would never be able to get there. And here's what I worked on. And here was the support that I got. Here's my journey. And ta-da, here's the destination. Here's the outcome. And then people clap and they hear the outcome, but they remember the story. They remember how someone went through struggles and overcame them, how someone had to grow and learned where and how to do it. And then they walk away from the talk and they say, well, that speaker was really confident. And that speaker most of the time spoke about struggles and ideas and dreams and broken hearts. Michael, here's one that you will remember very well. And, and it's dear to our heart because her research in vulnerability has impacted our show. And we use, and we talk a lot about that research and data, but Brene Brown got her start. She did a Ted talk on her research in vulnerability. And unfortunately uh, for her, she had to be vulnerable in her talk about her research in vulnerability. And when she delivered that TED Talk, uh, when it came out, it was, it, it was very popular. But she was unbelievably shaken up over being vulnerable on that stage and sharing her work. And she was talking about the journey that she took in order to, to do all of that research. She was so terrified and so nervous about how it would be received that she tried to get TEDx to take down that talk. And it, it blew up because so many people were able to relate to her journey about vulnerability and how uncomfortable she was about vulnerability. And that 
that propelled her into stardom. I mean, that's how she got her, her break, how her, how her research became so popular. And Brene now is part of that Oprah circle. And also watching that talk, you'll see Brene shows enthusiasm about her research. Yeah. She shows optimism about what's possible. She's definitely present when, when she's up there on stage. And she adds that confidence piece by talking about the journey as well as the destination. And that just makes that lady incredibly charismatic up there on that talk that she hoped only 300 people would ever see yeah. in, you know, it's in, in its existence. And there's a perfect example of this from a client, Matt, in the X Factor Accelerator, who is a real estate investor, is a part of numerous masterminds with real estate investors who've been in the game for 20, 30, 40 years longer than him, who have way more in assets under management, larger developments. And oftentimes in these situations, he feels this lack of confidence. He feels like he can't stack up to those around him. And of course, if he was to just list off his accomplishments and compare those to others, well, he might actually be less confident in that setting. So what we worked on together was, well, what's the story? Because when he was going to mastermind events, people would ask him, why real estate? Or what's your story, literally? And he would often find himself saying, well, you know, I got started a few years ago and, and it's fun. And what we did in working on his story was we decided to focus on the journey, what inspired him to get started in real estate and what has his journey in real estate created in terms of an opportunity for him. And what he found was he got started in real estate because his dad was a successful businessman. Unfortunately, his dad was so humble, he didn't even know how successful his dad was as a businessman until he passed and he took an internship in his dad's company. And then he realized everything that his dad had built. So that inspired him to go into business. And after having a few false starts in business, he learned real estate from a mentor and had some success with his first investment. And what he realized on the real estate investment journey was that it actually allowed him to be creative, to tap into his creativity in building deals, finding tenants, and creating win-win opportunities for everyone. And it was that creativity and that opportunity to be more creative that inspired him to carry on in the real estate investment game. Now, in sharing that story at a recent event, he actually found not only did he feel more confident in himself, but he started to get more questions about his journey and actually interest in the deals he was working on. Whereas previously in going to some of these mastermind events and networking with people, he would find himself being quiet, a little bit standoffish, not knowing what to say, and certainly not feeling comfortable selling himself. As many of us think selling ourselves is listing our accomplishments. So the next time you're in a situation where you might be surrounded by people who you feel are more accomplished, share your journey instead of the destination, and you'll find that you not only appear more confident, but you actually will feel more confident internally. Back to Arthur Brooks, we delve into the impact of language on relationships and effective communication. Nobody knows what's going on inside an individual couple, to be sure. Only the couple knows that. And you find out things about people after the fact, et cetera. You're always kind of surprised about that. But, you know, when we say that these older couples, the reason that they that they stay together is because of the social you know, strictures against divorce. That's not usually true. 
The number one reason is that they were highly complementary to each other because they were probably set up by a loved one who thought they might make a kind of a good match based on their complementarity and their difference. And the second is because it was really, really inconvenient to split up, they learned how to have conflict. They just actually learned the rules of the road is what came down to. Now, when I'm working with couples, the number one thing that I work on is I listen to them having an argument. And all the couples that are really, really struggling, it's always me and you and I and you, and they're always talking about these personal pronouns, either in the first and second person, always move to the we and us pronouns. And and it's going to change the way you think and change the way you fight, it turns out, because you don't say, you hurt my feelings. You say, we had an argument and that really hurt me. We had an argument that really hurt me. You're taking responsibility and you're defining the problem as a project for the two of you to solve. And so when you actually solve it, you've made progress together. It's like, it's like your, your, your fights become projects just because of the pronouns that you use. It's so critically important. And couples that always use we and us, always use we and us, they're a team and they don't split up. Is basically what you find. So that's you know uh, idea number one. Well, not only you're staying married together, you're growing together because if you had gotten married kind of early in life in your in your twenties, you haven't really even discovered who you are, let alone your significant other. And that process, if you're able to be able to do that th- together, only lends itself to building, constructing a north star between you and your partner, and working towards that together. A very interesting guest this year was Harvard professor Robert Waldinger, whose longest running happiness study that we have cited on this show many, many times is one of the reasons we do this podcast is because of the results of this study. Now, let's hear from Robert Waldinger on the surprising happiness that we can gain from social connections, even with strangers. And what we're seeing is that actually the universe is conspiring to keep us isolated. So, so these screens that we love so much, myself included, are designed to hold our attention, to capture it, to hold it, to keep us on our screens, not let us alone to be with each other in the real world, right? Because attention is the commodity that they're after. The difficulty now is that the path of least resistance is to stay isolated. That's the path of least resistance, and it requires being more intentional. And then, you know, as you're saying, Johnny, like, what do you do when your gut is saying, I don't want to do this? You know, I don't, I don't really want to go to that networking event or that party. And that's where we can kind of check in with ourselves. Like one of my friends was telling me yesterday, he said, you know, I realized that when I actually let my partner drag me to a party, I end up feeling better. But my, my re- first reaction is, no, I don't want to go. And, and we, they did a study of this where they, they studied people who were about to take the subway in New York. And they randomly assigned them to, you read about this, AJ, yeah. but they randomly assigned people to either you're going to do what you normally do, which is like listen to music, stay on your, stay to, keep to yourself, or you are randomly assigned to talk to a stranger. And they asked people, how much do you think you're going to enjoy this assignment we've given you? And the people who were going to have to talk to strangers thought they were going to be much less happy afterwards than the people who could just do their own thing. Then they asked people after they completed their assignments, the people who talked to strangers were way happier than the people who kept to themselves. So again, it's just a reminder that we're not good at knowing what's going to make us happy. And so we have to often remember back and say, oh yeah, I really did like it 
when somebody dragged me to that party, right? So we have to be more intentional and we have to get over some hurdles. This is why I do this. Like, I really care about getting these ideas out there because I see us all, myself included, so easily becoming more isolated. It can't be stated enough that we're in a loneliness crisis. Your network is your net worth. And it's not just about money. It's about quality of life. High value relationships inspire and motivate you to be your best. Robert Waldinger continues with practical advice on deepening relationships through the power of shared interests. With this longitudinal study, you see that people later in life make these changes, start to invest in relationships and see a direct impact on their life. So for those in our audience who are feeling like, well, is this it? <laughs> is this what I have for the rest of my life? You know, how do we make that change and, and how do we inspire them to take action towards these relationships? Yeah. Well, first, you, you know, what we say is it really is never too late because we have the, the data to show it, right? That there are people who, who like find their tribe for the first time in their 60s or they, you know, they find love in their 80s. I mean, it's kind of astonishing. And we have 20 somethings who have said to me, uh, I'm no good at relationships. They're never going to happen for me. They're sure that they're, that it's just not going to work out for them. And so the message that we can give backed by science is that's not the truth, that it is really not too late. But then you're asking the big question, like, well, what then what? What do you do? And I think that it involves doing some of the things we've been talking about, that it involves figuring out what what could you do? What small steps could you take? And one of the things I want to name is that people should expect a little bit of failure. Like not everybody you reach out to is going to respond with warmth. They may ghost you. They may not respond at all. They may be, uh, they may feel annoyed, right? Sometimes that happens. And so I think when you think about starting to reach out it's important to remember that there's there are going to be times when it doesn't work. It's like shooting baskets in basketball. You know, you're not going to make make the basket every time, right? So so the and that has to be something we prepare ourselves for. And then to think about maybe a place to start is think about something you love. Think about something you love to do. It could be anything, you know, it could be bowling, it could be, be playing the banjo, it could be knitting, gardening, it could be working to prevent climate change, it could, be, it could be anything. And think about ways to do it alongside other people who share a similar interest, because that's a natural place. Often, you know, that gives you, first of all, it gives you something in common, it gives you a place to start conversations. And then one of the things that research tells us is that if you put yourself in situations where you're going to see the same people repeatedly and maybe have casual conversations, those conversations can start to deepen. That's why the water cooler or the coffee machine at work was so important. We don't know what we're going to do now that those are falling out of existence. Stephen Kotler adds to this discussion, emphasizing the crucial role of social support and the unique concept of group flow experiences. Take it away, Stephen. The coolest thing here is for the people who have really fallen out of practice with this, because all the research shows you're going to, because you're going to get started in the pro-social neurochemistry. And if you're starved from it, you're going to get the biggest oh, results yeah. yep. first, right? And the fun part about it is, 
And I think this is really core to people. We know how important lifelong learning is. and We've just talked about a whole bunch of stuff around it. But the impediment for a lot of us is shame and embarrassment and self-consciousness. And we forget how to play, right? This is one of the things about deliberate play that's so cool. One And one of my secrets to park skiing that I sort of started to figure out in the research is we've all heard about the motor learning window that shuts after childhood and you don't become a ballerina in your 30s and you can't learn languages. And, and like all these stories, there is some biological truth to it, but it's only to a point. And the whole truth is it's not so much that the brain and the body change. They change a little bit. It's that kids learn by playing. There's no shame. There's no self-consciousness. They're not mad that they're bad. They expect to be bad because they've never done it before and they think it's funny. And as adults, all that stuff, like somehow you think like you're less of a person and if you're bad in public, and I'm the same way. I freaking hate being bad in public, right? I don't <laughs> like it at all. I don't mind being bad, but I don't like being bad in public. So not being out of practice with the social stuff, so cool because you get to like the only way to make social stuff work as you know is it's got to be play if networking is work then you're that creepy guy at the conference yes. and nobody wants anything to do with right like if if you're just like a playful fun person to be around and you're interested in other people and and finally like what is the secret to a great conversation all of us read our dale carnegie listen to the other person and yes. be interested in them as a person like it's not even rocket science and curiosity is a flow trigger and it's fundamental to so many important things in life that learning how to cultivate curiosity in your conversations with other people, it's such a potent peak performance tool. That's right. It can be hard making friends as you grow older. We support our X Factor members as they use our social capital framework to build out their high value networks through their mission and their goals. When it comes to communication, people constantly rate themselves as much better listeners than they really are. Why is that? Well, in our five pillars of communication toolbox, we break down the five layers of listening and why most people get stuck on the first two, which causes a lot of conflict and lost connections. We interviewed Oscar Tromboli for the podcast and he walked us through the five layers of listening. And we're so excited to unpack them for you here because this will change the way you view listening in a conversation and allow you to become a more active listener and a better communicator. So the first layer is listening to yourself, that inner monologue that we all hear. For some of us, it might be critical in social situations. For some of us, it might be the comedian who just wants to jump in with the witty one-liner and get people laughing. Or it might just be anticipation of, oh, this person's going to say that, so then I can go ahead and say this. But that first layer of listening really impacts your ability to communicate clearly and powerfully if all you're really concerning yourself with is what's going on inside your head. We need to actually listen to the other person, move beyond that first layer to be an impactful listener. AJ, just a few weeks ago, we dropped a, an influence episode that had some, some clips from Vanessa Bonds, and she had also mentioned that that first level of listening is four opportunities for us to reply. And if you are listening for spaces to which you can reply, you're not listening to what they're saying. Well, that brings up the second layer of listening, listening for content. Now, 
A lot of us might work in really analytical jobs where all of the data and information has to be parsed, has to be problem solved, and you have to come up with a solution. So you might be very adept at listening to the second layer, the content. Where is AJ from? What type of music does Johnny like? What color shirt is Michael wearing that's his favorite? Right? This is the content that the other person is sharing with us. It's the data collection. And if you're good at being a data analyst at work, you're probably really good at being a data analyst in your listening. But we have to move beyond just those first two layers because that's really where the magic starts to happen. Now, the second layer is listening to the context. This is about the assumptions that people are making. What is actually going on? What's the frame of reference that they're working from in sharing this information? So for example, if I'm in a professional setting, I'm probably gonna share differently in my communication than I would in a social environment or at the bar. My stories are gonna be different. The sides of my personality that I choose to share are gonna be different in that context. So an adept listener is actually listening beyond just the data, but then thinking about what's the context behind what this person is sharing with me and is there something that I can pick up on in that context that I can use in my communication in my response to them? Now, the fourth layer, and when we practice this in our implementation session, this is really when the light bulb goes off. The fourth layer is the unsaid. You have to be listening so intently that you're picking up on, well, what is AJ withholding in his communication? What is he glossing over? What hasn't been shared but is implied? right? So if I'm sharing a story about something, maybe I'm hyper-focused on the setting, but I'm not really sharing who I'm with. Or maybe I'm talking about my work and I'm talking about a big project, but I'm not really sharing the department that I work in, right? What is the unsaid? What am I holding back? And that's a great opportunity for you to explore, to get the person to share even more, because if you can pull out the unsaid in conversation, you're actually a powerful communicator. AJ, I want to add going back to that influence episode. And if you guys haven't checked that out, it was just a, it was a few weeks ago. And uh, Vanessa Bonds also commented on this as well, is when you are listening for the unsaid, you can summarize for people, hey, I'm hearing this. Do I have this correct? Right? When you summarize it in that way, this allows the person you're speaking to to either confirm or tell you that you've gotten it wrong. Either way, you are the, the high value person in this because it shows your willingness to wanting to get to know and understand the other person. So if they say, yes, absolutely, that's what I was trying to say, or you nailed it, or they might come back with, you know what, close, but actually it's more like this. Regardless, both of those answers work in your favor. And for those of our listeners who are now thinking that the, that the unsaid might be something that shows up every 10 minutes, there might be one thing that is unsaid and that we can pick up on. Actually, it's two-thirds that is not said by the other person. And the reason this is two-thirds is that we speak at about 125 words per minute, but our brain is able to take in 400 words per minute. And we're thinking, while I'm speaking, I'm literally thinking at 400 words per minute, and I have to pick the ones that are actually coming out of my mouth because I can only fit a third of them out there. Now, there are some listeners that uh, since this was first discovered over 60 years ago, 
we have some listeners here that are making good use of that because you're listening to this podcast at 2x, at 3x. And guess why? That's exactly why, because you can take in so much more than the other person can say. So keep in mind that there's a lot of unsaid things out there that are there for you to find and comment on. Now, the fifth and final layer is the meaning. Listening to the why is this person sharing this with me? So going back to that professional context, maybe I'm talking about a big project coming up at work that's given me a chance to speak to the team or to share in a presentation or a webinar. Well, the meaning behind that might actually be me sharing with you that I love public speaking, and that's why I'm so excited about this project. So if you were to say to me, AJ, it sounds like you absolutely love public speaking, you're listening to the meaning of why I'm sharing that work example. And when you can hit on the meaning in your communication, you, as Johnny said earlier, you allow that person to experience a conversation they've never had before. Because most of us as average listeners are listening to the first two levels, ourself and the content. And we're looking for those pauses to jump in and share something that we can relate to the content. We're missing the context, we're missing the unsaid, and oftentimes we gloss completely over the meaning of why we're sharing that. And listen, every single person you're communicating with wants to present their best foot forward. They're very particular about what they're going to share with you upon meeting you for the first time in any context, a date, social, or professional. And in that, in that them being selective on what they're sharing and communicating, well, there's a meaning behind it. There's a why that they're choosing to share that with you. And if you can search for that why in your listening and draw that out in your conversation, you've just become a powerful communicator. So listening is obviously important, but how does improving your listening skills translate to professional success? In this next clip, we lay out the direct impact of listening on your career trajectory. If others around you don't feel that you're a great listener, they don't rate you high in your ability to listen to the context, the meaning, the unsaid, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you are getting passed over for promotion. Even if you are that spark plug, that hard worker who goes the extra mile, listening is part of that executive presence that makes you a great team member. And that's how you end up getting promoted. I had this happen to me when I was working in, in the film industry on an animated TV series, and they were about to remake all the models they were using for all the characters in the show. And I'm you know, always in the kitchen, I'm talking with people, I'm listening to them. And there was a lot of talk about the new season and what they would do differently, how the programming would change, how the technical aspects would change. And that was the number one topic in the kitchen. But the thing that was unsaid that I picked up on was like, guys, you don't have anyone to manage that, right? You're looking for someone to lead that project. And they said, uh, actually, you're right. Like we're talking so much about the details, but we don't have any, any project manager there. And I said, you know what? I can take this on. And boom, you know, second season, um, I was responsible for the characters on the show. And even the best listeners can struggle in a few of these areas. And this is a fun anecdote from Matt, one of our X Factor Accelerator members, who joined the program assuming he's an excellent listener. And why is that? Because he's a music teacher. He actually teaches kids how to play music. So of course he's very adept at listening musically and to notes. But what happened, Johnny? Well, I, I can relate to Matt because I'm also a musician. 
And as a musician, when you're doing improvisational stuff, which is basically an interaction through music rather than language, and music is a language, in order to be successful at that and have a lot of fun with it, you have to cue in, clue in, and listen to certain arrangement pieces. So maybe I want to interact with what the drums are doing or what the bass is doing or carry along with the melody of the, of the voice. So I'm going to focus in on those aspects so that we can have a, a, a musical dance. So Matt, as a music teacher, he was great at listening. And, but Matt, and, and during communication, speaking with uh, the other parents and, his, and the kids in class, he didn't recognize that he could focus in on certain aspects of the conversations that were happening to make them dance as he would in musical improvisation. So through our classes and our implementation sessions, Matt had learned what to focus in on and, and going from an unconscious incompetence to a conscious incompetence. Okay, now I know what I'm missing and I'm going to work on it to a conscious competence. Hey, guess what? Now that I'm focusing on the right things and I'm able to utilize them in conversations, I see them growing. And through many practices and working on it, after a few weeks, it became something that then Matt regularly did to an unconscious competence. He doesn't even need to think about it. It's just how he speaks with people, just like his musical improvisations. And now he has, he said his relationships with the parents of all the students had blossomed. And he also used it at his performances. One of the things that Matt had a lot of trouble with is he would get off stage after one of his band's performances and go in their crowd and everyone wanted to talk to him. And it freaked him out of how to deal with this. And so once Matt learned this trick, he started putting breaks in between their sets so that he could talk to the audience and mess with them during their performances. That's how confident he got with the, using these techniques that we're going to be discussing today. And, and then, of course, he's, he saw the connection that he had with the audience and his audiences for his performances started to grow. Impressive how something as simple as listening can have such a big impact on your career, isn't it? Now, let's move from logical to the emotional, a transition that can be challenging, especially for people who spend all day in the logical half of their brain. This next segment is all about recognizing emotional bids people make to connect with you on a deeper level. Understanding this revolutionizes relationships and saves marriages. When we're talking about emotional bids, we do need to talk about Dr. Gottman, who you've heard us talk on this show so many times. 
Um, and what he did was, this was in 1999, he designed a lab in the University of Washington campus and he made it look like a bed and breakfast retreat. Uh, it was affectionately known as the Love Lab. And then he invited 130 newlywed couples to this retreat, to this love lab. Of course, um, they knew this was a study. They knew what was going on. So they would go there, they would spend time there, and he would observe them in their day-to-day -day interactions with each other. Now, what he discovered was that throughout the day, these partners would make requests of one another, requests that weren't based on the content of what they were saying, not on logic. They were requests for a connection, and he called those emotional bits. So after six years, here's where it gets really interesting. After six years, he followed up with those 130 uh, couples that he had in the Love Lab, and he discovered that there was a huge difference between those couples that were still married at this point and those that got divorced or were in an unhappy marriage. And the difference between those two, can you guess it, were emotional bits. Those that were still happily married, they reacted to 86% of each other's emotional bits. Um, those that didn't make it through those six years, they were at the 33% mark. And, and, and remember, these were newlyweds when this study was done. So even there, 33% of emotional bits at a newlywed stage didn't quite cut it. Now, you must be thinking, what are some examples of emotional bids? And we'll link up the cheat sheet in the show notes. I want to share just a few of the ones that we've highlighted so you can get a sense for what an emotional bid actually looks and sounds like. Now, the first one is a bid for an extended conversation. As an introvert, I will find myself often being short, to the point, being concise. But when my wife is actually trying to build a deeper connection with me, she'll ask me deeper questions to share a little bit more. And if I'm super logical, I might be like, well, why do you care about this? Why, why do you care so much about what specifically Johnny and I were having for lunch? When in actuality, that's an emotional bid. She's looking to connect. She's looking to place herself in that emotional space with me and Johnny enjoying that business lunch. Another one could be a bid for emotional support where your friend at work might say, hey, I'm really concerned about my upcoming performance review. I had a rough quarter. I'm afraid I'm going to be put on a pip. I'm afraid that I'm not going to get that promotion. Well, that's them expressing uh, an emotion that's concerning for them and looking for emotional support from you. So you may be in situations where an emotional bid is actually the other person hoping that you'll support them and be there for them in their emotional state of need. Another simple one is just a bid for interest. Are you interested in going to check out the Barbie movie with me? Hey, do you want to go check out Oppenheimer this weekend? They're looking to gauge if this is something that can be a shared interest between the two of you. Now, those are just a few examples of emotional bids, but the point is the person is looking for connection in their communication with you. And when you start to recognize these seeds of connection, you actually water them so the relationship can blossom. And now you've become a really powerful communicator in that you're leveraging conversation for connection for relationship building. And these emotional bids, although Dr. Gottman's research is in romantic relationships, they're found in every social, professional, and romantic context imaginable. Because as humans, we have an innate desire to connect with one another. 
So if you find yourself wondering, why aren't these conversations going the way you want? Why are you struggling to build and foster the relationships that you really want in your life? We ask you to check out your listening. Can you level up that listening, that first pillar of powerful communication? Are you giving value to the people that you're speaking with and communicating with? And are you able to recognize the signals of when people are actually trying to connect with you? Because if you don't recognize them or turn away from those emotional bids, as Dr. John Gottman says, you're actually breaking that rapport, you're breaking that attempt at connection, and if you keep breaking it, that person's not going to want to spend time with you, is not going to feel comfortable inviting you, or even worse, it could end up in divorce. It could end up in you losing your job. Now, this was really pronounced with one of our clients, Colin, who had immense success in his career. In fact, he sold a company and had an exit, and he was trying to figure out what to do next in his career. And he joined the program feeling, after moving to a new city, that he was sort of struggling on the social realm and the romantic realm. And he was guarded in sharing his career success because he didn't want to invite the wrong people in to build relationships with. He didn't want people seeking just his status with this great accomplishment in his career. So when he joined the program being super logical, he was wondering why he was struggling to form the connections and the relationships that he really wanted. And in the X Factor Accelerator, we worked through the concept of emotional bids and it was that real light bulb moment for him of all the signals that he was missing out on. His logical brain wasn't allowing him to see in conversation around him of people wanting to be his friend for the right reasons, wanting to go on a date with him for the right reasons. And he was completely guarded about all of his professional success because he didn't want to attract the wrong people. Let's turn Stephen Kotler's insights on managing burnout and the importance of regulating our nervous system. You sort of combined a couple of different archetypes together. So like there's a slightly different answer for people who are burned out than people who are sort of content and a little lazy and a little fearful, you know, that's sort of, there's slightly different answers, Okay. but cause usually if you're coming in with burnout, you have to start, and this is really useful for anybody. You want to just start by like manicuring your nervous system, right? A little bit of emotional regulation. So like anybody who's burned out, you want to start by trying as much as you can to get seven, eight hours of sleep a night, for example, just like baseline, this is the amount of sleep we need. We know hydration, nutrition, that sort of stuff. Um, and you want to lean on basic tools like social support. Make sure you have a good social support network and you reach out and you're actually, you know, really based. This is the basic stuff that helps us manicure our nervous system. And then depending on how jacked you are, do one to two to three of the following a day. So if you're a little anxious, right, a little burnt, you want to do either a gratitude practice, a mindfulness practice or exercise. And it's literally a five minute gratitude practice. And I could talk for the next two hours about the neuroscience of gratitude and why it's important, but let's just gratitude practice mindfulness for stress reduction. You want 11 minutes of like breath work a day. It doesn't have to be super fancy. Um, or I love running a loving kindness meditation because it's a freaking script and you find an online, you know, and you just, I literally just have to run the script and it does the same thing. It's actually better than most other forms of mindfulness or 20 to 40 minutes of exercise, right? You exercise, when you're exercising for anxiety, you wanna wait for your lungs to open up and to get a little quiet upstairs. That's a sign that the brain has released nitric oxide. It flushes all the stress hormones out of your system. So like 
what I tell the people is if you're a little um, anxious, little burnt, do one a day, two a day, you know, or three days. So that's where you sort of want to start really with if you're anyone that's those are sort of like the peak performance basics this is how do you just get in the ring but the thing i want to emphasize and this is really the place to start everybody has what's known as a primary flow activity for me it's skiing meaning like 80 90 percent of the time i go skiing it just drops me into the zone for my wife it's hiking with the dogs in the backcountry. for my best friend it's playing guitar for another good friend of mine it's coding for you know jigsaw puzzles like whatever it is for you you want to double down on that uh and in fact the research shows that if you can spend three to four hours a week on a primary flow activity, that might be the single best intervention to start with. And here's the thing, it's, it does all kinds of stuff. So flow is a focusing skill. So the more flow you get, the more flow you get. So if you're going skiing on Monday, you know, for you, it's your primary flow activity it might mean more flow at work on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. We know that the heightened flow massively boosts happiness, well-being, um, overall life satisfaction, those things. And the afterglow flow seems to last a couple of days. The heightened creativity well, it'll last a flow state by a day, maybe two. Um, and when we move into flow, it resets the nervous system towards zero. So it flushes our stress hormones out of our system. And I'd like to mention from a peak performance aging point of view, there are nine known causes of aging. All of them. What do they have in common? Inflammation, stress and inflammation. So anything you can do to combat stress and inflammation is combating aging and it's, you know, sort of job one. So you get a lot of bang for your buck with your primary flow activity. And the thing about it is, and the reason I wanted to mention it, because you described a certain type of person and what happens is as we start to age, whatever, usually around right around 29, 30, like those, the exact age group you described, you put away childish things. Oh no, I got a family. I got a job. I've got responsibilities. I can't ride my skateboard. I can't ride my surfboard. I'm not going to play my guitar. I, you know, all those things go away and it's the exact opposite of what you need to be doing. Right? Like, so it's very counterintuitive and it's also, I will tell people, I will say everything I'm going to talk about, whether it's this or a handful of other things, they sound, they're not sexy. Right. Like there's nothing really say. I always say nothing I talk about. If you bring it into a bar on Friday night, it's going to get you laid. It's not sexy. <laughs> it's not like bioacting. You're not injecting rhinoceros horn peptides into your testicles. You know, I'm like, none of that shit is happening. It's not. Um, it's just, it's the most deadly effective stuff in the world, period. It's what all the science shows. And everybody wants, they either want a shortcut or they want a whiz bang. Where's the app? Where's the technology? You know, and I, I like simple psychological tools that produce powerful neurobiological reactions. In this next clip, Stephen Carler also discusses the intriguing concept of making replacement friends as a strategy for peak performance aging. It, and this is really clear. Like this is in all the research. Out of all those things, out of the whole the big sentence, what's maybe the most important part? To actually two things. If you had, if you could maintain strong legs and um, have a robust social life, especially like one that requires you to use your brain in fun new ways, this doesn't have to be intellectual, but it, like playful, you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing where there's, because you want, it's, it's the brain stimulus, like the social stuff, it calms our nervous system way, way down. We know the psychological safety demands, all that. We could talk for the next five hours about that. Um, but it also challenges the brain in, in novel and interesting, right? Um, people are unpredictable. 
So the brain wants like novel, challenging, whatever. And like you get more of it. And the other thing, this is really important. And this shows up across the boards and people don't talk about it. You have to make replacement friends. Most people know people their age, right? And as you age older, so I have a dear friend who I work with. He was literally one of the smartest people on the planet during the 20th century, made a colossal amount of money, very famous, very well-known, giant thought leader. He is very old. I called him just to check up on him a lot during COVID because he was in New York and I was worried about him. And he's very old. And he would say things like, oh, Stephen, it is so great to hear from you. Everybody I know has died. I don't know anybody anymore. And the craziest thing about it is like, he comes out of a particular generation of thinkers, like a, a group of like 70 scientists, and they think differently. Like if you know, it was a really interesting era in like science, and it's a very particular way of thinking. So think about this. Everybody who thinks like him, they're all gone. All of them. He's like the last remaining one, and he didn't make replacement friends. And um, and it's certainly also a peak performance aging. It shows like the societies where people age the best cross generational friendships. It's better for young people. It's better for old people. Everybody thrives and a society where that exists, you tend to get all the blue zones, right? All the societies where you have really long lived lives. That's one of the things that they are. They have one of the commonalities is cross generational friendships and sort of respect for all, all generations, which is another thing. Also, I have to say this, like, I have this great joy of running a company where like the vast majority of everybody works for me is almost 30 years younger than I am. And that amazing, right? Amazing for that. And then I've got a bunch of people who are, you know, 30 years older than me as well. It's just, it's wonderful. Cause you like, it's, you get kicked out of your fixed thinking. As I was saying for the folks who are in this self-made prison, the replacement friends or creating a robust social life because I think their their friends have disappeared. They're, they're, these people may now be married or uh, they just let their, their careers take up much of their lives. And so they hadn't worked on their replacement friends and their friends are getting married and they're having families or they're, they're wrapped up in their careers. And all of these folks know that they, they need to get back out there. They need to start networking. And they come up with every excuse in the world of why they can't. Just like somebody who may be a bit overweight who could come up with every excuse in the world of why uh, they don't have time for the, for the gym. So what I always say with people like that is, okay, man, I hear you, but run the experiment. Yeah. Just run the experiment. I mean, like, the uh, robot, I'm an introvert. I'm like, I'm an introvert. I am a writer. I like to spend most of my time alone. My wife and I, like if we spend she's an introvert too. She, if we spend a half an hour to 45 minutes a day, sort of like trying to connect. And then I have one phone call with one other friend. That's me for a day. I'm good. But I try to like, I force myself at the end of every work day to make a 10 minute phone call just to somebody in somebody I haven't, usually I'm looking for somebody I haven't talked to in six months, eight months, whatever. I just like, it doesn't even have to be long, but I'm just, And here's the reason everybody has to care. And this is the thing that people don't understand about uh, social support. Whenever you face a problem of any variety, and just to put it in context, we did some studies. Most top executives face five 
challenges a day that would fall into this category, like the kind of thing that could be a threat, a problem, right? But it's a hard decision. Every time you encounter anything like that, your brain wants to know, you know, how much energy do I need to meet this situation? And the first program it runs is it says, well, do you got backup? Do you have people who love you? Do you have people who are covering your ass? Because if you don't, oh shit, this is a big challenge and we need to produce a lot of energy and give you a big anxiety reaction. And that all that energy is taking energy away from performance. It's ruining the rest of your day, right? Because it's you're stealing energy and stealing willpower. And that big anxious reaction, that's norepinephrine. What does norepinephrine do? It blocks learning. It blocks creativity. It makes us logical, linear. Often it makes us stupid. It wants to reduce choices. I'm scared. I don't want a creative wild solution. Give me something that's safe, that's secure, that works 100% of the time, right? So you're burning tremendous amounts of energy. You're limiting your brain power. And all this is happening because you didn't want to pick up the phone and make a 10 minute phone call or have a good conversation with your partner or friend. Like that's fucking crazy. That's just dumb. That's dumb. It's hard to go on a diet. You know what I mean? Those, those kinds of fixes are freaking hard. I'm saying call a friend. Like the best thing we can do is to call, like that's a crazy thing to not do. And so what I always tell people is never take my word for anything. Run the fucking experiment in your own life, right? Spend two weeks where you, 10 minutes a day, you're going to reach out and touch someone, preferably in a way that doesn't get you arrested. Thanks for clarifying. And see how you feel at the end of two weeks. See if you're making better decisions. See if you're performing better. See if your relationships are better. If they're worse, and this was shitty advice for you and stop, right? And I'm a moron and I apologize. The shout out this week comes from Ash Cat, who emailed AJ and I, and he writes, hi, AJ. Hi, Johnny. My name is Ash Cat, and I began listening to your podcast during the pandemic while I was in Kazakhstan, my home country. I initially started listening to improve my English skills, but I soon discovered that your program was incredibly helpful and I gained valuable insights and practical skills from your podcast, especially when I was learning English and dreaming about moving to the US. And now that I am happily married, our family is expanding and I'm a postdoc researcher at Harvard Medical School in Boston. Although life is challenging with my finances, I have also created a website to offer my services. Whoa, way to go, Ashcat. He continues by saying, I want to express that even by just listening to your podcast, I continue to learn a lot and feel supported by you guys. I hope that someday I will have the opportunity to attend your training sessions and meet you in person. Well, Ashcat, I can't tell you how much AJ and I would love that. And we certainly do have live programs rolling and the X Factor is waiting for you guys. So come join us. Everyone, we want you to have a wonderful holiday and go out there and have an incredible new year.